Welcome to Encounter Grace, where we come face to face with God's work in the world for our good. Join host Jason McKnight as we explore practical issues of community, theology, and leadership in everyday life. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Encounter Grace. This week we find ourselves in one of my favorite weeks of the year, Holy Week. And I have a single question for you, Jason, for you guys, and it's this. What would you do if you only had one week to live? Hmm. Wow. Which is a hard question to ask. Yep. Like what? And so I, well, the way that I think of it, those couple of things that I make it on my bucket list, those right, things that right. we want to accomplish before we die. So maybe finally jump out of a plane with a parachute. Yeah, <laughs> finally. Right. <laughs> and so I think of like all like wanting to be around families mm-hmm. and, and be around my loved ones as much as I can to take that, that big trip that, you know, you try to save up for, but you never quite take. Yeah. Uh, those uh, big experiences like jumping out of an airplane or whatever it is. And I'm telling you, if I had one week to to live, I would eat everything in sight. <laughs> That's like, a good I point. I wouldn't even, it'd be the most amount of bacon. It'd be uh, everything. Cheesecake. Oh, yeah. bacon cheesecake. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so I think how we mm. answer this big question of what would you do if you only had one week to live tells us a little something about us. That's good. It tells us what we want, but perhaps things that we value, our hopes, our dreams, fears, anxieties, purposes, callings, missions, and maybe even what kind of person we really are. Hmm. So this week, being Holy Week, I want to bring this question up. Hmm. Because I think it's an interesting way to look at and understand who Jesus is. That here's what's really interesting: the author of the authors of the Gospels all go into specific detail at greater length about the Passion Week than any other portion in Scripture. Yeah, it's true. A third of Matthew, a third of Mark, a quarter of Luke, and nearly half of John all Holy Week. That when we look at the Gospels in just sheer wordage and structure, each one of them unbelievably back-heavy. Why? Hmm. Why should the Gospel writers spend so much time on the Passion Week? Why would they spend so much time on this one week when Jesus had lived for 33 years, three years specifically doing ministry that was filled with miracles, incredible stories and insights of that would seemingly seem more important to know? And so here's what I want to do, because I, here's, I think, the big answer. Yeah. I think Holy Week gives us the clearest picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Mm-hmm. So, Jason, what I think we should do today is walk through each of the days and see what, what, do, what was each one, what, what happened, mm-hmm. what is it, why did he do it, maybe, and then what does it ultimately reveal about Jesus? And so that all starts with, when? Triumphal entry on Sunday. So you're right. Yeah. Like if we, if we just look at a glimpse of each of the days, what are we going to see? Well, what happened on Sunday on the triumphal entry? Here's what happened. Jesus arranged a worship service. Mm-hmm. That's what happened on Sunday. He arranged to enter Jerusalem on a donkey down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, probably we think right beside the Garden of Gethsemane that he's going to go to a little bit later in the week. And then up the rise into the gates of Jerusalem, right beside the temple. The crowds were adoring him. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
putting palm branches, cloaks down. All Jerusalem was stirred, including the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders. Mm -hmm. And that's really important. What is this ruckus? Who is this pretender king? Is there going to be a riot? That's what Pilate was thinking. Is there going to be a riot? (laughs) Okay, so here's what's important about triumphal entry, about Palm Sunday, about what happened there. So we're thinking of the last week of Jesus' life. Number one is it's the only public worship that Jesus allowed. Three years of ministry, every time he heals someone, he says, don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything. Except for that poor guy in the Gadarenes across in the foreigners. You know, he says, go ahead and tell everybody. (laughs) But in Israel, don't say anything, don't say anything. Because he does not want to be taken before his time. Mm. Because the popularity forces at play. Like, think about it. A healer who's exuding love and dignity and proclaiming the kingdom is here. If you do too much of that, you're going to get crowned before you're ready. John 6 says that. He withdrew himself after the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus always is saying, pipe down, pipe down. My time has not yet come until the triumphal entry. And now he's saying, it's time to make my kingship unmistakable. So he invites Mm -hmm. public worship. He specifically enters on a donkey like the Zechariah 9 king. He encourages Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's Israel's Messiah. He's saying it, saying it out loud. Second reason Palm Sunday is important is this. Jesus knows he has to make his claim to kingship so unmistakable that the Jewish leaders have to take action. Because we think theologically, we all went to Sunday school and we think, oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. But how did he get on the cross from a historical side? So that's part of the story of the Holy Week and Palm Sunday plays into that is he has to make his claim to kingship so unmistakable and so widely known that the Jewish leaders have to take action. It's a self-conscious act, acting out his calling to be Israel's Messiah, Israel's king and the coming Passover lamb. So that's going on on Sunday. What happens then on Monday? Yeah, so I I think for time's sake and just because they're thematically about the same, we're going to take Monday and Tuesday together. Okay, Monday and Tuesday together. Uh, And I also want to- I like to take Monday and Tuesday together. (laughs) Yeah, I wish I could always do that. I think it's just important to go out and say, I think it's helpful to remind everyone and to always remind ourselves that each one of these are unbelievably connected. Mm-hmm. That one of the key yeah. takeaways that you said was that Jesus is in Sunday, Jesus establishing his kingship. Well, on Monday and Tuesday, the theme is Jesus establishing his authority. Yep. And so like, on, and we see it through tons of different ways that on Monday, we, we see three specific instances of this that Jesus is cleansing the temple. He walks in the temple, flips over some tables, casts Mm -hmm. out the animals and the money changers, all while quoting Isaiah 56, at least the way I see it in my head. (laughs) And then immediately after, he he heals some blind blind men. Mm -hmm. And then he curses the fig tree after. Three specific instances where we see that Jesus is authoritative Mm -hmm. in the temple. I mean, over... Like health and ailments. And that's his last healing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. And then even over nature itself, Mm -hmm. that Jesus is the authority. That's good. And then on Tuesday, we get a little bit more, but a lot longer and a bigger picture of it. If uh, And it starts with the Pharisees always doing what they do best, questioning Jesus, Mm -hmm. specifically his authority. And so if Monday's arrival in the temple was a, let's say an all-inclusive living parable of cleansing God's house. (laughs) Tuesday's entrance is a direct verbal confrontation with the appointed leadership. Mm. 
Like after Jesus clarifies, he doesn't regard these leaders as having any authority over him. He spends the rest of the day right there in the temple to teach the people God's word. He reminds everyone, this is, like these guys don't have the authority I do. And what does he do? He goes straight to God's word. Right. We need that. We just we need that reminder. Mm-hmm. But Tuesday afternoon is the last time Jesus publicly teaches in the temple as a free man. Wow. His word on this day are his closing arguments, as some would argue, his manifesto to his people. A clear and lengthy exposition of Scripture where Jesus dismounts the Pharisees off their high horse Mm, and reminds the crowd that the means by which we come to God are decided by God and revealed by God, not the scribes, not the Pharisees. Mm. Over several chapters, numerous addresses to the crowd, Jesus leaves little doubt that he has and speaks with an authority that far outweighs anyone else, that Jesus is authoritative. Mm. So what does this ultimately reveal about who Jesus is? I think it does two things, and they're very basic things. The first one is Jesus is the authority. Whatever we're talking about, wherever we are, whatever's going on, it doesn't matter. He's the authority. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the builder. He is Jesus Lord. Hmm. He is the authority. But it also means that the second thing, that if he is, the scribes and Pharisees aren't. Yeah, that's true. That so much, so often Jesus is rebuking the scribes and Pharisees for trying to add on to the law, add on to what God has said add on to how God has revealed himself. It's not just this, but it's also this. Jesus has made it clear that he is the authority, that he is the center, he is the focus, and that if that we need to look to him and that all, of pa- all the power under heaven is his. That's what he talks about on Monday and Tuesday. That's what does he tell us on Wednesday? So Wednesday is a very quiet day. So after the authority and the tired publicity yeah, of, of Tuesday and then Monday and then Sunday backwards, now there's this quiet day on Wednesday, and he's anointed by Mary at the home of Simon the leper, just over the hill in Bethany. And, um, you know, this woman comes into the dinner, and of course, they, they don't sit in, in, in tables and chairs at dinner. They, they sort of recline on couches, so they're leaning they're leaning on an elbow and they're, you know, sort of eating from the table, yeah. fingerish foods, and their feet are out to the side. So their heads are in at the table and their feet are out back, you know, their, their bodies are out back. And, um, and they're, they're reclining on the couches. And she comes up and she comes up to Jesus with, with this whole thing of ointment and she pours it onto his head. Mm. And it's, it's, if you stop to think about it, it's a very intimate act. It's a very simple, quiet, out, like it should not happen in public. Like you, you get ready at home Hmm. and then you go out. (laughs) It's totally extravagant because, you know, there's all that money wrapped up in this ointment, you know, in this, in this perfume or whatever it is. In fact, some of the people say, Hey, shouldn't we help the poor with this money? No, this is just an extravagant act and it's out of place at this dinner. And it's not at all pragmatic. Um, 
But look at what Jesus says. I love this in, in Matthew and in Mark. Don't bug the woman. I think that's the message version. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bug the woman. She's done a beautiful thing for me. You can always help the poor, he says, which I think he's calling their bluff. Hmm. I mean, and I think he's calling my bluff. You can always help the poor. They're always here to help. You're so concerned about them. Help. But you'll not always be able to help me. Now back to that dinner and the disciples right there. She's prepared me for burial. Mm -hmm. Now, think about that line. She's getting me ready because I'm going to die. Do you think she knows that? I don't know. But what I do know is Jesus knows it. He knows it. He's facing death. It's just two days away. And he sees this extravagant, this beautiful, this intimate, this simple action as a preparation for that brutality. And I love this. I just love the last thing Jesus says. Wherever the story of the gospel is told, they're going to hear about her. Man. I mean, that's such a word of dignity for her. We don't know her name, or maybe it's Mary and, and whoever, but she's going to be included in the cast of characters of the announcement that Jesus' life and death and resurrection changes the world. Mm. She gets a place in that story because of an extravagant act of devotion by this woman that we really don't know much about. Yeah. I don't know. God is an artist. You know, it's not all pragmatism. It's not all utilitarian efficiency and, oh, we got to do everything we can. You know, yeah. you, you know, you go, you walk in a cathedral, a cathedral in Europe and it's just beautiful and it's utterly extravagant, hmm. but it enables us to worship more, Gosh. certainly like acts like this. So here's Jesus knowing he's being anointed for burial. Yeah. And then, so on Thursday, uh, Maundy Thursday, one of the yeah, most yep. famous scenes, I think, in all of Scripture. We get to the Last Supper. Uh, and here's what's funny is, as I was reading through them in the different uh, in the different Gospels, they all kind of have this, especially John, because mm-hmm. he spends more time here, they all kind of unravel the Last Supper like a play. Hmm. Uh, I love John 13, the first verse or yeah, first verse says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to part out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's almost this foreshadowing of what is going to come, what, and what his intent is, and what, mm. what we're about to, to both taste and drink and smell and, and just be a part of in that room with him. And so I love that you brought it up that uh, the Really the night before they're 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 at the table, the way that they recline back, their feet are away mm. from them. Because here we have this major moment of when Jesus begins to wash his disciples' feet. And we all know, like we I mean, we've probably done this in like in a Bible study or talked about this before, that in this time period when, you know, they're not the most clean <laughs> to put it again mildly. They don't have sneakers. Yeah. And so to wash someone's feet, to wash your own feet would have been probably one of the worst parts of your day mm-hmm. or, or however long. And to, for Jesus to wash them was a major shift for all of them to see at this point that they were beginning to see a little bit more clearly who Jesus was. They'd seen his authority. They'd seen the miracles. They had seen what he had done. And this man was washing their feet. And, and I think they're blown away by it. Like Jesus, I mean, I remember when Peter's, when yeah. he's having his feet washed, he's like, Lord, you wash my feet? Like what? 
And so we have this place where Jesus begins to wash his disciples' feet. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. And then after that, Jesus is, we have this really sad moment, I think. It, it's to me one of the saddest moments in scripture is when Jesus then, he feels troubled and he's addressed, he addresses his disciples and tells them that one of them will betray him. And what I find so interesting is he knows exactly who it is. Mm-hmm. And he, he doesn't look to Judas and try to convince him not to. He just tells him to do it quickly. And Judas leaves. And then what happens then is some of the most, one of the most important parts in all of the New Testament is when Jesus breaks the bread and he says, break it. He says, take it, mm-hmm. eat it. This is my body. Oh. And then he takes his cup and says, drink it. Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for for the forgiveness of sins. So why did he do this? Hmm. When Jesus was watching washing Peter's feet, Peter asked him, Lord, do you why do you wash my feet? And Jesus responds in this way, he says, What I what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And then, at, he, then after that he puts on his garments and he asks this question, Do you understand what I have done? Hmm. And he doesn't even wait to, for them to answer because he knows they, they don't. He says this, right. you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should, should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So why does he do these things? Mm-hmm. Jesus did these things to be an example for them of mm-hmm. what his death would mean yeah, for them. That's right. That what kind of life they were being called into, a life of servanthood, a life of being willing to wash someone's feet. Are we willing to do mm-hmm. that? But mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. what his death would mean for them. Take this bread, break it and eat it. Drink from this cup, for it is my blood. A new covenant founded solely in him. So what does this reveal about Jesus? I think it reveals two things that are pretty closely tied. The first one is that I think we get an intimate picture of who Jesus is. That he's not just the, the king who rode in. He's not the conquering king though he could be. Mm-hmm. He's the suffering servant who's come to lay down his life. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing is the one that, and I know, cause I know you can touch on that in a little bit. But secondly, that Jesus spends his last night alive with his disciples. Like yeah. they're dirty, they're grungy, they're constantly have to be an annoyance to him. One of them even would betray him. And of all the things that the God of the universe could do with his time on earth, mm-hmm. on his last night, he spends it with his disciples. I think there's no greater testament, there probably is, maybe on Friday and then on Sunday, of just how much Jesus really loves his people, mm-hmm. that he's willing to spend his last moments with his people, that he wants to be around them, he, he communes with them, he talks with them, he's with them. Jesus loves to be around his people. That's great. That is great. And, and he takes them then to the Garden of Gethsemane, 
And then he's betrayed there. And then yeah. he comes back to these trials, this whole kangaroo court. And then finally, we get then on Friday to the crucifixion, which literally is the crux of the matter. Mm. <laughs> so when we think of the last week of Jesus' life and how he spends it, of course, everything drives to the cross. Everything is going to the cross. So what is there for us to say here? Well, and by the way, I'm so excited for us as a church to gather mm. just in a couple of nights on Maundy Thursday and worship Jesus. And we're actually going to worship him in a different way and focus on one part of the story that we've never focused on before as a church. You'll have to come and hear it. It's <laughs> going to be great. We'll get to worship Jesus in a new way. But when we get to the cross, what happens? Well, first of all, how did he get on the cross, historically speaking? Because, you know, he, like we, again, yeah. the Sunday school and the seminary answer is, you know, Christ died to save sinners. And we thank God that he did, and he really did. But how did the play play out? How did it all work? What would make Pilate actually crucify him? Well, starting on Sunday and starting even three years earlier, but he crossed the Jewish leaders and they orchestrated it all because he claimed to be king and he, he totally humiliated them mm. by speaking truth on Tuesday uh, and Monday and his temple interactions and he painted them into a corner. And finally, even in his trial, he's the one that has to speak truth to get a conviction. Like what they take as blasphemy is actually true. But he says, you know, you're going to see the son of man at the right hand of God. And they say, oh, they rip their robes and it's blasphemy. But he's actually speaking the truth. They just don't believe in him. But they call it blasphemy. So they're ready to send him over to Pilate to see if they can get a conviction. They very nearly lose. Pilate wants to set him free. He wants nothing to do with this guy. His wife tells him, you know, in a dream, you know. But they say, look, Pilate, he claims to be a king. We all were here on Sunday when that donkey came down the hill. If you let him live, you're no friend of Caesar. And friend of Caesar is kind of one of those terms in the ancient world, uh, meaning whether you're in or you're out. And they say, look, we, we are going to go over your head to Rome. If you let this mm -hmm. guy go, it's treason. You're a traitor and so on. So he has to admit uh, he has to crucify Jesus. So that's historically speaking how Jesus gets on the cross, why he was crucified. But theologically speaking, and now we go back to the seminary or the Sunday school answer, which are true answers. But now we say, what happened? What happened there? Well, the crucifixion itself is horrible. And we don't have to dwell on the physical pain or the agony. I don't even know, like, did you ever see the movie, the Mel Gibson movie, The Passion? Yeah, a little bit. And it was accidental, actually, to be honest. Well, it was very hard, but it was so vivid yeah. that, you know, nobody needs to talk about it anymore. You know, almost yeah. like it just is so bad. But the meaning is not in the pain. And I almost mm. think maybe Mel sort of being Catholic and really leaning into the passion side of it. Well, that's not the full meaning, not just, oh, look how much he suffered, although we worship him for that. But the meaning of the cross is in what it accomplished. Mm. And even the gospel writers, they're very circumspect as they de uh, describe the crucifixion scene. They just simply tell us what went on. They, they don't have to explain it all because, of course, everyone's seen a crucifixion. They don't even give theological reflections. We have to go into other places in Scripture. And of course, I love going backward into the Old Testament to see how God sets the stage. And so the most famous uh, uh, crucifixion scene, or not crucifixion scene, but, but what is going to happen at the cross is Isaiah 53. And I'm just going to read a couple of lines. Yeah. 
to, to remind us, okay, this last day of Jesus' life, the point of his life, why he's here, the time has come for me to be fulfilled. What's going on right then as he's hanging there on the cross? Isaiah 53 says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So there's a substitution taking place and it's costing him, there's the pain and the crushing, and it's because of us, our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins, our wrongs, our errors. Isaiah goes on, upon him, the punishment that brought us peace and by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He stood in our stead. He bore our punishment. He absorbed the wrath, paid the sentence that was due for our sins. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what's going on on the cross. Jesus didn't bear our sin in his preaching or in his healing or in his walking around or walking on water. It was in his dying. Mm -hmm. It was in his dying. Isaiah 53 goes on. Actually, the last three verses of the whole chapter have such hope and resurrection hope. You can read it and see. I'm just going to read one or two of them. Uh, It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's us. Jesus shall see his offspring, and God shall prolong his days, raise him from the dead, in other words, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Many will be accounted righteous, reckoned righteous, because of uh, what he does for us. Now, that's the hope and the promise coming out of the cross. That's what's going on. Bearing our sin, making many righteous for the joy set before him. That's why he did it. That's Friday. Man, Jason, thank you so much for helping uh, helping me kind of walk through this. I've just, one of my favorite weeks getting to walk through Holy Week in the way that God just reveals who he is. Uh, in a very special way. Yeah. Uh, this is who Jesus has said that he is. Yep. Who do we say that he is? Guys, thank you so mm. much just for tuning in. Like, share, send this video to a friend. Yep. Thanks for being here. See ya. This is a ministry of Grace Fellowship Church in Kinston, North Carolina. Visit gracekinston.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.